Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jake. I am not Rick, who is the normal speaker. I am like Rick, just much better looking. So um, so you're in for a treat uh, tonight. But we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 4. So if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles, there should be Bibles uh, around the room. Those are actually a gift to you. So if you do not have a Bible, you can uh, take that home with you. But if you do have one, please don't take it um, because there might be somebody who needs it. Um, And so we'll be in Ecclesiastes 4, and I'm going to go ahead and pray as you guys are making your way there. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for this beautiful building uh, that we get to meet in. Thank you um, for each soul that you have brought here uh, tonight. You knew that every single individual would be here tonight and and, uh, hearing from you. And so, Lord, I, I pray for even myself and, and my own words, that they wouldn't come from any of my own thoughts, that it would come from you, and that if there was anything that I say tonight that is untrue, I pray that everybody's ears would be closed to that. If there's anything true that I need to say, Lord, I pray that ears would be open. And so, Lord, I ask that you would uh, be glorified in this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, a little bit about me so you kind of like know who's talking. You may see me up here every once in a while doing announcements, so I serve GCC in that way, and then I also help lead uh, a gospel community on Tuesday night, which I think is actually the best one. Um, Not that it's a competition, but yeah. And so, uh, and I also uh, work with a college ministry at University of Oregon uh, called Crew, or yeah, we have some students here tonight, you probably hear them, and uh, formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ, and so I get to be a full-time missionary uh, as my job, which is actually really cool. And so as you look in uh, Ecclesiastes 4, what you see in the title is Evil Under the Sun. So that's actually what we're going to be talking about tonight, which is a fun one. When Rick's like, hey, Ecclesiastes 4 is yours, I, I shouted with joy, as you can imagine. And so that's what we're going to be talking about is evil under the sun, but, but not evil in the way that we're probably used to hearing about evil. And so tonight's going to be a little bit different, and uh, it's going to be almost like four mini-sermons, in a sense, all kind of wrapped around this idea of evil. And I don't know about you or how old you were when you have kind of first like understood what evil was, something that was bad or not good. But for me, it was uh, September, you know, 2001. I was about 10 years old, and uh, my mom wakes me up, and, and she's pretty serious. She's got tears in her eyes, and she says, Jake, you, you got to come see this. And I look and go in my, mom, my parents' bedroom, and there's this little TV up in the corner, and I just see these two huge towers and these planes crashing into them. And at 10 years old, I, I mean, I, I think I'd lived like a pretty easy life up to that point. I never had to like understand what what evil was but what I was seeing on the screen just had this kind of like you know sick feeling in my in my stomach or my heart and I couldn't explain it but I think that's when I first realized as a kid that there were some things in this world that just weren't supposed to happen that weren't supposed to be there and and when we think about evil that's that's usually the picture we have in mind right that's that's what I thought of when I first saw evil under the sun that's what we're going to be talking about 
but we're actually going to go in a, in a slight different direction of evil because evil is actually this really like huge word. <laughs> and so even if you go look it up in the Hebrew translation, there's, you're going to get a huge list of, of different translations of what it means. Um, but to, today we're going to be talking about two of them that, uh, that talk about bad, like evil as just being bad, which is obviously the opposite of good. Well, the big one is of small worth. Evil, when it's tra- translated in Hebrew, means small worth or of little value. And so I, I thought I would explain that well, and the original word is ra. Can you guys say ra? Ra. Yeah, that's an easy one, right? And so that's the word we're going to be focusing on today for evil, is this idea of bad or small worth. And I don't think any of us are strangers, you know, to this idea that evil exists in the world or, or something that is of small worth or of little value or not good. And so the preacher is going to walk through, we're going to talk about four different like kind of areas or ideas of evil and, and how the gospel actually gives meaning to each of these areas. And it, the first is oppression, uh, then work, which we've kind of talked about actually a lot in Ecclesiastes so far, and then community, and then wisdom, which again is uh, another topic that we've discussed before. And so I'm going to start just in, in, in verse 1. It says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil evil deeds that are done under the sun. Wow, that's a good start to the night, right? Um, And so we see this word oppression a lot. And the definition of oppression, if you're a words person like me, it's prolonged, cruel, or unjust treatment or control. And so he, you know, who's writing this is Solomon, and he sees all the impressions. This guy has seen a lot, right? This is the wisest guy who has lived. He has all types of money, kinds of money, and power, and he can see all of these things and experience them. And so for him to write this down in this book, it means it must be pretty powerful of all these oppressions that he is, is seeing this unjust treatment or control of people. And he says all the oppressions, there's so many, and they're unable to be numbered. And the preacher is struck by them enough to put them here and that these people that are being oppressed had no one to comfort them. And on the opposite side, the side of the oppressors, there, there's power. And that word power, it's interesting. It's actually the same word that's used to describe God's strength, his strength, which is, is crazy to think about because they had this same strength over this other group of people. They were using it just for evil things, for bad things, for things of small worth. And what do we else do we know about people who oppress others? They find their worth in actually like having control over that group or over that thing. And that's actually of little value. There's no value in just having control over someone else or something else. And they are in the driver's seats calling the shots because they're the ones who have the strength. And, and a good example of this um, that I could think of is like children and parents, right? So who has the strength like in a family or the parents? The parents do, correct? They have the, the power, the strength, uh, both mentally, emotionally, uh, physically uh, over a child, right? But then we hear all kinds of stories about uh, children being treated cruelly or unjustly um, because they don't have the strength to overcome these oppressors of their parents. Um, and there's no one to comfort them in their suffering. And so a lot of times that was like the first thing that came into my mind of, of what that can look like. And I think many of you sitting in these benches have actually experienced heavy, heavy oppression 
if not at some point in your life, you're experiencing it right now. An oppression based on uh, maybe your gender, uh, maybe it's because of your past, maybe it's because of your skin color, financial status, even social status. And I think you can all resonate with, with what he's talking about here um, and, and having nobody to comfort you. And I think right now in my life, what I thought of is not necessarily a people oppressing another people, um, but actually uh, something entirely different, which is illness. Uh, and if any of you are obviously like familiar with, with cancer or the effects of cancer, I, I find that that is definitely prolonged, cruel, and unjust treatment of, of somebody that cancer has. And um, if those of you who, who know my family and our family, my wife Sarah, we're going through probably the, the hardest season of our entire lives, which is um, my, my mother-in-law um, has incurable uh, cancer. And, and going through that, I think, has, opens your eyes up to the oppression, this power, this strength that cancer has over people. And I think all of you probably at some point in your life have, have either struggled with that or experienced that. And so as you can imagine, we're all sitting here and the preacher says, it's so evil of such small worth that he counts those people who have died actually to be better off than us right now living and experiencing that. And I think as I read that, I'm like, I think he's got a point, right? Like he's got a point that what we see in our world is, is pretty, pretty broken, uh, pretty disgusting at times and, and heartbreaking um, and evil. And on top of that, he says, actually, the best of, of us all are those who haven't even been thought of yet, who haven't even lived and died and experienced the things that happen. And, and although this is pretty extreme language, I think we can see where he's coming from. Um, but the reality is, and this is a hard reality, is that there, there was oppression years ago, thousands of years ago. There's oppression now, and there's going to be oppression in years to come. And there is, you know, where's the end to it? And he's saying it's better to be born than not to experience it. And then we're off to a delightful start, aren't we? <laughs> but my hope is that you actually find encouragement in this. Um, and as I was digging into this uh, idea of oppression, um, my mind obviously went to Jesus. And my hope is that you find encouragement in the fact that the Son, S-O-N, Son, of God came to endure evil under the Son, S-U-N, right? And experienced the same oppression you and I might experience. And he was wrongly and unjustly put on a cross by those in power, those who found their worth in the control of other people. And there was no one to comfort him. His friends left him. They split. And as he was drawing his last breaths, what did he say? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, even for a moment, his only true comfort had to leave him. And why did he have to leave him so that, so that we right, could enter a relationship with our father? And so my friends, I, I hope that you take comfort in, in this one who was oppressed and oppressed for you and oppressed for me so that our relationship could be secure. And you will be, never be alone in your oppression because of what Jesus did and the oppression that he went through. And so although we see this uh, lack of comfort here in Ecclesiastes, we don't have to experience that because of what Jesus has done. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's, I think, how the gospel gives meaning um, to oppression. And, and let's go ahead and, and hop on down to uh, verses 4 through 6 where, where he's going to talk about um, work again. And so verse four, it says, then I saw all the toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. 
And this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. So, so he's circling back to this idea of vanity of work um, and the toil, like in the evil of work. And I would argue that he's bringing up the, actually the biggest dead end of work of all, like the purpose of it, uh, which is this lie that work gives us self-worth and it gives us value and it gives us meaning. And we are fed this lie even from a young age. When you're a little kid, what, what do people ask you? They, they say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And so automatically your mind starts going like, what, what job am I going to have that is going to give me value, that's going to make me come alive, right? And it continues to high school and college. I mean, when you're studying and you're going to school, whether it's in high school or college, you want to do things that, that make you happy. And we're consistently looking for things that we enjoy and you know, that's not a bad thing in and of itself. It's not a bad thing to enjoy your job. But if you're looking for that to be your ultimate source of joy, I don't think you were meant to find it in your job. And uh, we're also looking for a purpose, right? We're, we're, we want to not be a waste of space here in the universe. We're like, we don't, we don't know how we got here necessarily or like why I'm taking up these atoms like right here or something, but I don't want to waste it. I don't want to be a waste of space. And so we look for work a lot of times to be this like meaning in our life. Like, well, if I can do anything in my life, I'm going to do this job and that's going to make my life have meaning. Whether it's also like, you know, uh, a source of money too. Like a lot of times we use our job as, you know, this, this, Hey, if I at least have money, then this like, you know, my molecules or whatever have some value or some worth. But the preacher says that, you know, searching for meaning and success from our work is actually connected to the envy of our neighbor. And how does that actually work? What does that mean? I think it means uh, our toiling and work are why we actually strive, you know, so desperately. Um, sorry. Oh, we strive so desperately for our work to mean something. And it starts with comparison of what our neighbor is doing. In other words, I, you know, judge my value of my work based on the person I'm working next to, right? Am I working harder than so-and-so? Do I have more toys, vacation, nicer car, higher salary than so-and-so? Have I got more promotions than so-and-so? Am I doing better than them? Am I getting more recognition? And I don't think that's something we're unfamiliar to. I Funny thing about me, too, is I used to teach eighth grade English, which would never be on uh, the answer that you would give your parents of when they ask you what you want to be when you grow up, is working with 14-year-olds who are sweaty and immature and funny. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> Sorry if you're 14 in here. My, my apologies. Um, we've all been there. Uh, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I legitimately used to ask my students, I'd be like, hey, like, what'd you do in like so-and-so's class uh, today? And the reason I asked them is not because I was actually like curious because I wanted to care for them. It was because I wanted to like do something cooler or funner or like uh, more memorable than this other teacher. I wanted to show more movies than this other teacher. I wanted to be like cooler uh, than these other teachers. And that's hard, like I'm embarrassed to admit that. Um, but I don't think like, I think you can probably relate to me in that when we, we search for this value, this meaning, um, from our work. And I, I realized, why did I do this? You know, why do we do this? Why do we look to the people next to us? I just realized it's because I was so deeply insecure. Like I was insecure about finding my value in my job and I needed to get, go to these students and actually have them tell me that I was cool or worth something. 
And sometimes that's not just a person, it could be money. Like money could prove that you're worth something to yourself because you're insecure about it. And, uh, and I think, um, the reason we are insecure, you know, is pretty simple. Actually, I think it's because we're never meant to find our security in our job. There's a reason that we like feel this sense of disconnect, uh, and security of our job or value or meaning is because we weren't meant to have it there. Um, is, which is exactly why the preacher calls it meaningless vanity of small worth. We are meant to get our meeting, you know, from our father and not from our work. Okay, so what do we do with this, right? Like work is meaningless. We, we could have like a, a few responses to it. And he actually kind of tells this little riddle. Um, so check this out. In verse five, he says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. If you've spent any time in Proverbs, you're probably getting like a flashback. So Proverbs, that's what it really looks like. And so what you see here is uh, these words hands, and you're going to see it three times. Uh, interestingly enough, they actually all mean something different. And so that's what's really cool about like our Bibles is uh, like an English word. You know, we see it, but it actually mean, can mean something very different in the original language. So the first hands, it says the, the fool folds his hands, right? And this actually means your entire arm, like your entire arm. You're just sitting back you're like, nah, you know. If work is vanity, then why do anything at all? Like, I might as well just sit here, fold my arms. But he says the result of that is he eats his own flesh. And, you know, what we can relate this to is, is laziness, right? Is, okay, if work doesn't mean anything, I just don't really care about it, then I'm just going to do nothing and, and be lazy. And this is actually like a neglect of, I think, your skills, your abilities, and potentially squandering like what, what God has given us um, in life. And, and quite literally, you will have nothing to eat but yourself. And that's what he's saying, um, is that if you do nothing, you, you won't get anything, and you'll have to eat yourself. Um, but if anyone, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm going to quote First uh, Timothy 5.8, um, just kind of reiterate this. It says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, then he, uh, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so I know that's like pretty harsh language, but I think what it's saying is laziness can, can ruin you. If, if your response to, to work is, is just to not do it, that actually can ruin you as well. And you never see a lazy person, you know, like, you know, gnawing off their own arm. But you do see them erode, right, their self-control, their care for themselves, and even like their self-respect. So their person can deteriorate, even though it's not like physically eating them. So the second half, um, verse 6, it says, you know, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the winds. The two hands translates to fistfuls like this. You know, you hold your hands out like this and you can see I'm like clenching, right? And this can also be a response, you know, it's like, okay, whatever. If life, if work is meaningless, I'm going to squeeze every last bit of it as I can. Every last penny, every last meaning, every last, you know, self-respect I can get pride, recognition, I'm going to squeeze it out, right? And it says, I'm milking this life out for all that it's worth. And as you can see, as my hands are clenched, I actually have to like loosen up because <laughs> it's like tiring, right? Like it's really tiring to sit there and clench your hands like that and your fingernails start to dig in. And there's a reason I think he uses that you know, metaphor, those words, is because there's no rest in that. Like, there's no rest, there's no peace, there's no... And as you're milking it, you know, like you're, you're losing some of it. So you're never satisfied. You just keep squeezing harder and harder. He says, but better is one handful. And this one is actually an open palm. 
and it's really cool. It says, an open palm, which shows you're okay with some stuff falling out, right? Like stuff gets put in there, naturally some, not everything's gonna make it in there. And you're okay, you know, with stuff falling out of your hand. And naturally, like, where's your other hand? If one hand's out, it's at your side, which means you're working out of a sense of rest. You're working out of this peace and this rest that this hand is okay right here. And you're working out of that. And, and I think it shows a lot of contentment. And uh, I'm reminded of Matthew 11, very popular, like quoted verse, which Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. So we're working out of this sense of Jesus has given us rest and we can work out of that and be content with what is given and what we receive from work, right? And ultimately, Christ is the one, going back to the verse, that gives us meaning. He's the one that gives us meaning. That's why we're working out of rest with our hand in our pocket, right? And he was the one who put you together. He was the one who gave you the skills. I think you should use your skills to benefit people and to glorify him and use your job to do that. But you're determining your value based on the one who has given you value, not on your job, right? And so I, I want to say, like, I struggle with this, even like in ministry, <laughs> Uh, in, in working with college students, you know, at U of O, and I think it's really tough for me not to find my value in what I do. Like if work is not going well or something in work isn't going well, I feel like crap. I don't know about you guys, but like if something at work sucks, like I, I feel terrible. And then when things are going really well, I'm pretty happy and I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty easy going. Um, but what this shows is that I'm actually like determining my value and my self-worth and my attitude based on my job and not on my relationship with God and the one who created me for it. And, and so this passage is speaking to me as well. I'm actually reminded, oh man, I got some, uh, if you could see like inside my heart, I'd be so embarrassed, but I'm going to let you in a little bit. <laughs> I was gone like for a conference a couple weeks ago and a buddy of mine, a coworker of mine, what we do in crew is we have what's called discipleship groups. And so we meet like with one to two students usually and, and get through the word and just have some sort of topic that we teach. And I was like, hey, I'm going to be gone. Can you, can you take, you know, my buddy's name's Chris. I was like, hey, could you, could you take this group for me? Uh, I'd really appreciate it. He's like, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. And I come back, and guess what I do? I go and ask my discipleship group. I just like, hey, how was it, like, with Chris, you know? <laughs> and, and I was asking because, like, I wanted to find my value. Like, I wanted them to be like, oh, we like you better, you know, or something. They, of course, did not do that. Lord was very kind. It, but I'm just saying, like, I think, I think that mindset, that mentality is like, we want to be the best or we want to be something to give us value. Like we want our job to give us value. And I'm no different, you know, even though I say like, I'm a missionary, like I, I have the same, you know, <laughs> like struggles when it comes to work of like wanting value, wanting to be seen and recognized and get your value from work. And it's not where we're meant to have it. So moving along, we see, you know, the third evil that he points out and that's um, the evil of actually, um, sorry, I'm going to call it individualism or just like being alone. Okay. And so, uh, verse seven, he says, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with his riches so that he never asks for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure. This also is vanity and an unhappy business. And again, this is the, the vanity of individualism, being alone. And so we see this person who has no one, and he's dedicated his life to work, put all their time, energy, effort, and what they do 
um, and they did it on their own, right? It says they had nobody, no family, no anybody to share any of this with. No sons, you know, nothing. And the preacher says this is also vanity and evil under the sun. And now some of us in the room, we know who we are. We tend to be lone wolves. We're, uh, you know, as the famous movie Hangover says, I'm a one-man wolf pack. You know, we, we know if, I, if you hear that, you could probably like nod your head and be like, that's me, you know. And we like to do our own thing. We're pretty independent, sorry. And others of us have a hard time relying on people, you know, for things. And so, and some of us relate with the idea of not sharing what we have, like with other people. It's really hard for us, you know, we kind of approach life like this. Like, it's really hard for us to let people in and, and grab some of the stuff that we have. We never ask, who, who am I doing all this for? Like, what is all this about, you know? Is it for anybody else? And no matter what part you might identify with in this, in this parable or this kind of example, the truth, you know, that the preacher points out, I think, can speak to all of us, is that self-centeredness, this idea of individualism, individualism, me, is vanity. It's meaningless, and it's of little worth. It's of small worth. And to build us off of this idea, he continues to go down um, in verses 9 through 12, and he says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him... Uh, who is alone when he falls, and not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken or quickly broken. And so this idea of, of two being better than one, because they get to share, right, in their reward for their work. And what is the reward? They have each other right, to lift each other up. And this, this is not just having work implications. I think, uh, I believe Ecclesiastes is actually making a, an encouragement to, to build partnerships uh, in your work or whatever it is that you do. And that's a good thing to build like solid partnerships. But I think it also goes into our relationships um, in life and in other people. And so when you have someone with you, obviously you have somebody there to pick you up when you fall. And if you have somebody to encourage you, you know, right? Um, in your struggle. And, and I think right now, as I mentioned, um, going through this process of, of my mother-in-law struggling with cancer, I can't tell you how many people have come alongside of us and, and prayed for us or sent us text messages uh, and even reached out to her. Like uh, she has this friend who's like making her food all the time, playing cards with her. And uh, I just think we're, we're overwhelmed with this idea of like when we fall, when we go through co these cold seasons of life, we have people there to encourage us and lift us up. And, you know, another point on this is there's a reason Jesus sends out the 72 in pairs, right? There's a reason he didn't send them out. Okay, you go do your thing, right? One, each one of you, he knows that, that when you have two people, it's going to get hard, right? Life's going to get hard and you need somebody there to guide you, encourage you, lift you up. But the preacher says, but woe to him who is alone when he falls. And that's both in work and life. If we are alone, we will remain that way, I think, when trouble hits. If we live life alone, that's how we'll remain. Some, uh, you know, biblical examples is King David and Bathsheba. That's a pretty popular story, right, of, of, a, of a deep sin that somebody committed. And uh, if you're unaware of the story, basically David, is the king, is supposed to go out to battle, but he actually chooses not to, and he hangs back, and he's like, ah, I'm just going to do my own thing, actually. And what happens is he's much more, you know, basically exposed to falling into sin, and he sees Bathsheba, and he invites her up, and 
he basically forces her to have sex with him and and the story goes on from there but the the lesson we learn right is that he chose to be alone like that was actually the first part of his his sin his brokenness was being alone um, it wasn't actually the the sexual sin that he he struggled with <laughs> is that he didn't follow his troops into battle and another example is Judas right another really popular example of somebody uh, who has committed a, a pretty deep sin is that he actually isolates himself right from the group he isolates himself and he looks to himself like hey what what can I get out of this and the evil one exploits that and so when we face these cold seasons of life we need others to keep us warm comfort us and be alongside us so we don't freeze and that's why he's talking about like if two lie together they keep warm and against the fight of this enemy where he talks about um, although a man might prevail against one, two will withstand him. I think that's a very easily like transitioned over to this fight against the enemy, this fight against um, him wanting to overcome us. And you'll be beaten when you're alone. But I think if you're with community and with people, you will withstand that. And then we get this last like kind of like famous little quote. It says, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And what is a threefold cord? What does that actually mean? And this is actually really cool um, and interesting. The, the third chord is, is not just like adding one more to the mix. You know, obviously three is better than two is his point. But in, in a deeper sense, I think it actually refers to God being a part of your relationships. If it's just you and me and, we, and God is in the center of our relationship, right? It's, it's going to be stronger than just me being by myself. But if God's a part of it, it's going to be that much stronger and harder to break. And we'll withstand trials, you know, uh, when God is a center of your relationship, whether that's your marriage or your friendships or your, with your colleagues or whatever that is, it's only going to make it stronger. And of course, when you think of a threefold, uh, you know, community or partnership, what do you think of? You know, we think of the, the Trinity and that's where our Godhead is a triune God. And the ultimate threefold cord is the Trinity and the most secure cord of all. And it actually was broken you know, when, when Jesus died on the cross, the entire Trinity was broken, each one going its own separate way. And it was broken so that we actually could have a relationship with God. And, and not only that, but when it says Christ gave himself up for the church, right? He, the Trinity was broken for community, not just for you. And so it actually, yeah, I'm sorry if I hurt people's feelings, but it bothers me when people are like, Jesus died for me. And, and that's very true. Like, I don't want you to not say that. But he actually died for the entire, like, it says God so loved the world. He actually, like, loved community so much that he died, okay? So he actually saved you, not just for you, right? But he saved you for community. He saved you for the body, which is the church, and we're all sitting in here, right? A body of believers. And he, and he saved you for that. And so don't think, yeah, he just died for you. He died for the entire body of believers. And so I think he created you to not be in isolation, to not be alone, but to be in community, in a community that's centered on God. And that reflects his trinity. Okay, so what does this mean for us? Pretty, you know, okay, that's awesome. We, we get it. What, is it. what does it mean? And my questions for you, you know, just to consider is, would you say you're, you're like the lone wolf in these examples? Would you say you're participating in partnerships or community? And on top of that, like, what would you say your relationships are focused on or centered on? Are they centered on you and like what you can, can get out of the relationship or are they centered on, on Christ and what he has done for each of you in, in the friendship or the relationship? 
And I think we can tend to walk into community. I, I'm, I'm guilty of the same thing. And we look for, hey, what can I get out of it, right? Walk into church sometimes. I'm like, okay, everybody come say hi to me, you know? And, and I think like when I leave and nobody came and said hi to me or, or not very many people or something, not saying you guys didn't do that, but I can be like, ah, oh, man, that wasn't very, that wasn't very much fun. Um, but we can walk into community like that. And I think that's exactly where the evil one wants us to be. Um, but I think if we're walking in the spirit, walking where God wants us to, we'll, we'll enter into community like these people we see in Ecclesiastes, looking to lift people up, looking to keep each other warm, looking to, you know, fight against things that people are going through. And so just remember, yeah, it's about the group, not about the individual. And when I write that, I'm like, that's for you, Jake, also. So, uh, and the other idea, you know, thing I want to communicate is community is hard. You know, I don't want to like brush over that and be like, well, we should all just get along with each other and everything should be great. <laughs> but when you're around broken, sinful humans, I mean, what do you expect? It, it's, it's going to be hard, but we have the choice, right? Like we get to choose to either enter into the community and keep others warm, fight for our brothers and sisters, pick them up when they're falling and, and fight against like the real evil one, right? Um, or we can seek to make ourselves happy and do our own thing, and look at community as a way to benefit us. I mean, it's our choice, and, and no one can force you into community. Nobody can force you into it, but we get to choose how we want to look at community. And my hope is that we look at, at it through a gospel lens, which means we're looking at it in the sense that, that the ultimate community was broken so that we could have community with one another. And so, yeah, and even like Christian life is, is a community endeavor. We weren't meant to do it by ourselves. Uh, you know, uh, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is a habit for some, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day is drawing near. So we're, we're meant to encourage one another, lift each other up, not go through this Christian walk alone. And so my hope is GCC would actually, you know, be a community like this, um, you know, that, that we stir one another up uh, to love and good works. And that we may be a threefold cord that's not easily broken because we reflect the Trinity. Amen. Yeah. Cool. Uh, as we as we kind of wrap up and go to the last little section, I'm going to read, yeah, verses 13 through 16. It says, "Better was a, a poor and wise youth, youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to the throne." Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living uh, who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he loved, led. Yet those who come after will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Uh, just really quick on this one, I think Rick has like talked about this. Uh, as far as this vanity of, of wisdom, you have two kings, right? You have one who's the foolish old guy who won't take advice anymore, thinks his, his way is the best way. He has all the power, okay, but his heart is not soft towards correction. And I think of Saul, like if you're thinking of biblical people, Saul is an example of that. He failed as a king because he was unwilling to take correction. And on, uh, on another king, right, a young one who came up from nothing, we can kind of look to him and be like, okay, that's, that's like the better guy, right? And he has true and genuine wisdom, and as opposed to the you know first king who didn't want to take any wisdom, and um, he says there was no end to this young king's influence, all of whom he led. He was successful, powerful, and liked by others. You know, a, a biblical example could be David, right? He has just mass, like extensive influence on people. 
Well, the preacher says to reinforce what we've already talked about a couple weeks ago is that they both die. Like both of their kingdoms actually end and they won't be remembered. Their kingdoms will end and their wisdom is gone. It's like a puff of air and it's gone, right? That's what these two kings have in common. And so it's, it's to reiterate or reinforce us to think like, okay, you know, this wisdom that we try to gain or influence that we try to gain, it's not going to last. And neither of them will stand against time. All right? And if we're looking for wisdom to give us, you know, our ultimate worth or value, it's not going to last. So it's a cheery note to end on, right? <laughs> and uh, thankfully, we know the end of the story, though, right? That's what I love about walking with the Lord and, and what Jesus has done. It says in Revelation eleven fifteen, it says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our, of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And I think we can take comfort in the fact that, you know, Christ's reign lasts forever, right? And even if we see the small worth in our own wisdom and reign or influence, we can look to his and its immeasurable worth, right? Okay, so as I, as I wrap up, um, yeah, I just have a couple like application kind of things. Like how does this actually play itself out like in my life? Um, and so we talked about these four areas, right? And how the gospel speaks to oppression, work, uh, community, and finally wisdom. But I'm just going to touch on um, community and oppression because I think we've kind of touched on the other things before. And so I'm just going to give you some practical ways to kind of like process this, right? And the first is, you know, when it comes to oppression. And my, my application point or what's a, how we can apply this to our lives is actually just trust. The word trust. And trust that every, every time I looked in this idea of oppression, I was circled back to this idea that Jesus is the one that brings ultimate justice, not us, right? Matthew 16, 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will pay each person according to what he has done. Jesus is the one who does that, not us. So the responsibility to bring true justice belongs to Christ. And this doesn't mean we don't take responsibility of the things that we see around us. That's not what I'm saying, Right? When we see brokenness, I think it's also part of our responsibility to stand against that and to, to speak against it. But if we're looking to ourselves to be the ultimate source of justice, we will never actually find it because it will never end until Jesus comes and his reign starts, right? Okay. And so he's the one. And I think Rick has talked about, you know, this constant prayer of like, Lord, help my unbelief. <laughs> this idea of like, help me believe when I can't, right? Help me to trust in you when I don't have that trust. And second, when it comes to community, I just ask you some very like personal questions, some harder questions, you know, just simply, are you part of a gospel community? Is that, is that something that you have said yes to that I want to enter into and be a part of? I just encourage you, don't wait. Take the initiative to put yourself in a community in a practical way in light of what Jesus has done for our community. And some encouragement is 1 Corinthians 12 actually talks about uh, the body having different members, right? Like, you know, legs and arms and heads, all different parts, okay? Which means the community actually needs all these different parts. And crazy enough, you are actually all uh, created individually, which means uh, you are actually very much a unique individual that comes into community. And when you don't come into community or when somebody doesn't come into community, they miss that part of the body they will never get. I mean, I don't know, let's just say it's a right eye. That community will be, look, you know, like will we'll lack that if, if someone doesn't choose to come in, right? 
and, and vice versa. Like if you don't choose to come into community, you, you kind of miss what, how the other community can benefit you with its other uh, body parts, right? Um, and so the other question is, yeah, is community a priority for you? Um, or like Hebrews 10 talked about, do not neglect meeting together. Does that describe you, you know, uh, as, as neglecting meeting together? Um, and I think when our focus shifts on not what we can benefit from community, but how, how we can help influence community and mutually benefit it, I think we choose to, it's easier for us to choose to enter into it, whether we feel like it or not, right? It's hard to go into community when we don't feel like it. Um, but Hebrews 3.13 says to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. And so this is this call to every single day we can enter into community, right? And uh, this is not a guilt trip to go to a gospel community, by by the way. Um, but I just wanted to give you a realistic look. At, like that's just like a practical thing I can like think of that is very tangible. Of like, hey, I can I, I can enter into these and say yes to community, and, and influence it and be a part of it. Right? I'm not going to be sad like if you go to don't go to my gospel community, but but you should check one out for sure. Um, <laughs> and lastly, like just as we end, remember that the only way we can do any of this is because of the perfect community God has given us. We can't do it in our own strength, but it's because God has died for you and brought you into a relationship with you by breaking the Trinity that you're able to enter into community um, and be a part of it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pray and and maybe uh, the worship, uh, Mark, you can come come up as I'm praying. Yeah. <laughs> I was like the worship team. Lone wolf, no, I'm just messing with you, messing with you. Uh, Lord, uh, I, I thank you so much for this opportunity um, to, to bring your word to people. Um, and Lord, I, I thank you so much for your gospel, your truth, and the, and the way that your, uh, your death, your life, and your resurrection um, has so many different implications, so many areas of our life that has completely overcome and transformed. Um, and these are just a few of them. And so, Lord, I, I thank you so much for who you are and what you've done. And I even pray for this church, um, too, that we would be um, a body of believers, of people, um, yeah, that live in light of that truth, um, Lord, that we are saved by grace and nothing else. And so, Lord, I pray that we would find our ultimate value in you and what you have done for us. And so, yeah, Lord, we pray this all in your heavenly name. Amen.